Welcome to another edition of An Artifactual Journey. I'm your host, Philip J. Merrill, and today, as always, I'm excited, so I shouldn't say excitedly, I'm talking to Mark Golden, amateur historian and a nonprofit neighborhood clinic worker who has a magnificent story to share with us about his interaction with none other than Prophet Kiowa Kastoni and his daughter, Tony. Welcome, Mark. It's a pleasure. Okay, so because of modern technology, we get to post on Facebook a rare autographed picture taken by a noted black photographer in Baltimore from historic Old West Baltimore, which would be similar to your Bronzeville, Chicago historic district. Kiowa Castoni, and he's looking dapper with his pretty eyes and mustache and a lovely hat on. Prophet Kiowa Castani is fascinating in his own right on so many different levels from his adoption to his different marriages to his faith healing to his civil rights social justice early black lives matter and you saw the post and you commented and what did you say uh, in that facebook post about prophet kiwa kastani well it knocked me out because i just knew who he was right off the bat and what was ironic was a few years ago probably in the last 10 years i had just I curiosity looked him up. I'd recently gotten back in touch with Tony. We just, just corresponded a few times and I started thinking about him. And so I looked him up and I found something, but it, it outlined his whole activism and his whole sojourn in Baltimore. And I was floored because I knew him from Chicago just as an adolescent, but I was just knocked out by what he had been involved in, this activism, which I had never known about. Tony may have known about it. She didn't really tell me at that point, but and I just started looking into him further and further. And then I saw that pop up on your post in the Facebook page. It really, it just floored me. I thought, well, I know who that is. I, I, I must respond. Okay, we're so grateful. And our listening audience also will be grateful that you responded and we have a relationship. So let's just delve right into it. Under what circumstances did you first meet Prophet Kiyawakistani? And, and roughly how old were you? And put it in context for the public. Becca, you were scruffy or you were just saying, how did you look? Describe what you probably looked like at 15. I definitely was not clean at that age. You know, <laughs> when I say clean, you know, <laughs> I wasn't dressed business suits or anything, but just casual jeans, probably whatever. I wasn't, I wasn't a mess, but you know, I mean, I, I was thinking, in, in, when I was thinking back on this, I was thinking probably in his eyes, I probably looked like one of the scruffy kids around the neighborhood, you know, and, and, and Tony dressed kind of the same way. I mean, that was the Hyde Park way, you know, it was sort of that university neighborhood, everybody was really uh, a little more casual than all that. So when you go in, at this point, this is officially your girlfriend or the two of you are just trying to hang out or work the relationship part out? No, we had been together for a few months already and she told me about him and she would, you know, said this and that and various things about him. 
certain complaints, certain things that she adored about him, you know, classic adolescent relationship with a parent. We had been together for a little while, and I don't know if she said anything about me to him, but he didn't live, she didn't live with him. She was living with her mother at the time. They had been split up for several years. Okay. But she, she worked for him, though. She, she worked over at the store and helped him out sometimes, and, you know, he took care of her. So, you know. so and I love all this. With that, are you also fearful because this is the dad of your girlfriend? Because you know how teenage boys and adult men feel when they're going to meet or talk to or spend time with the dad of their significant other? Yeah, most definitely. I was I was definitely uh, intimidated. You know, I mean, I was 15 and, you know, I walk in there and, you know, and I'd heard a lot about him, you know, his miss preceded him to that extent, you know, whatever she had told me about him. So not only are you, you know, do you have the dad thing working, but, you know, this guy is is next to God on some level, you know, as far as she was concerned at various times. So I'm I'm walking in, I'm definitely intimidated. And And here he is in his suit, you know, looking sharp. And and did you actually physically (laughs) shake his hand or you just say, you know, hello? What did you call him when you went in, if you remember, back that far? I don't know if okay. I, if he offered, uh, <laughs> he seemed kind of busy, seemed kind of busy at the time, so I, I wasn't going to push it. Yeah. Yeah, so at the time, yeah, it was just kind of a quick, uh, hey, how you doing? He looked, he seemed to look me over and, you know, I felt like I was going to shrink into the floor. I can, point, can only know? imagine, <laughs> any male of a certain age that's been in that position can empathize, sympathize, and, and totally understand what you were feeling, what you went through. I know I can. <laughs> at that point... Is Chicago really taken by him, or is, is he viewed as a, a has-been, a wannabe, or just a quirk, a, you know, a quack? Or how is Chicago embracing the Prophet Kira Costoni that I know about? I'm not sure how much of his uh, Baltimore activism had preceded him. Okay. But he was, he was definitely known, at least on the South Side. You've know, you got to remember, too, at the time you had the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the Nation of Islam was just really kicking off strong in the mid-60s in Chicago. Mm-hmm. There was that. People probably knew about him in the same vein, you know, that I don't know if he was as widespread or I don't know if he had the same kind of press. He seemed a little more low-key, but at the, at the time there were several things going on, you know, various storefronts that were happening. I mean, I remember in 63 in Cottage, there was like ancient Hebrews thing going on there too. So there were various people doing religious things. So I'm not sure how much of his own legend was known in Chicago. Okay, okay. You know, he'd been there for a little while. But... That's good to know. Let me ask you this. Can you recall what type of yeah, things were being oil. sold, oils and so forth? Yes, I mean, I, I seem to recall that there were candles and uh, incense and okay. oils, various products. I know and those, but a lot of those would be sold, you know, pretty much all over the South Side, different like botanicas and stuff like that. Okay. New Orleans as well. But yeah, but it was, you know, he had shelves full of candles, oils, kind of thing, a, f- a couple of books he had written to you, I'm sure you're, you're aware of that in your research, he had written a couple of books, I believe those were on sale too. So the one I'm most interested in, uh, that was a nice segue by the way, I gave you a hat tip on that one, How to Win and Hold a Husband <laughs> yeah, in 1939. Hoping, no, I was hoping you were going to mention that one, because that one's definitely a keeper, I mean, I'm sure that resonated loud and long with whoever came across that one, you know. Yeah, well, and what, what's so ironic about it is that he couldn't keep a husband. I mean, he, I mean, he couldn't keep a wife. How in the world do you get to write a book about how to win and hold a husband when you can't keep a wife? Yeah. Right, right. Well, I think he, yeah, yeah. But I figured he was sure he could 
do, he could probably do or say anything. You know, I mean, <laughs> I think that's how confident he was. I mean, so you got to love the confidence there. Today's vernacular, we would say he, he's got swag. Uh, yeah. And in the Baltimore days during the Depression, he, he was slaying them because he, he had drip, historic drip. He, he was a dapper dresser, you know, had a Cadillac and pretty eyes and a turban and the hat. I mean, he was a lady killer. Oh, yeah, he was definitely, from those few pictures I saw, he was definitely young and pretty looking. By the time he was in Chicago, he was already older. He probably had to be in his early 60s, I would imagine, based on the date of his birth. Yeah. He was stylish up to, up to the minute, you know, wearing slender shark skin or iridescent suits, mm. ties, you know, they always had, still wore a hat, you mm. know, had a hat on when I saw him a couple of times. And his hair was combed back. The picture that I have in my mind of him was definitely older than what I had seen online and actually it was kind of a kick to see that because uh, you know from what i remembered of him it took him back you know and, and it kind of indicated to me that he had been a you know someone to be reckoned with on that level no doubt you know physically and you know on that level that no 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 doubt and his first wife emma stewart green was a socialite from dc and light bright beauty the afro did a magnificent job documenting her experience with the prophet in the 1935 article. The title is, This Man Castoni, Why Do Women Fall For Him? Dapper advisor to Love Long Could Not Hold Own Wife. Shattered romance made him a cynic. <laughs> so this is from August 24th, 1935. One of my other questions I wanted to ask you was, at the time, it was no big deal really to meet this man because he was just your girlfriend's dad, correct? She described him and I, I was kind of impressed with you know what he was doing because I was following a lot of that at, at the time you know my own consciousness was being raised I was becoming aware of all kinds of uh, socially you know what was going on you know racially everything that was going on in Chicago especially coming up on the south side so yeah what was your religious bent at that time and, and how were you viewing life when I was born Jewish family you know wasn't really very staunch upbringing like that but you know just aware of the heritage and the, uh, some of the tradition but you know my parents were, you know, kind of your classic white Southside Hyde Park progressive liberal types, you know, I mean, they were down with it, they were, you know, they were they were fine, you know, so I didn't have a lot of, you know, problem on that end, you know, you know I had a fairly, really open, relaxed upbringing as far as, you know, racially, diversity-wise. It must have um, been in order and, for you to date this black woman, right? <laughs> yeah, well, the, yeah, well, the neighborhood was conducive to it, it was just the whole experience, you know, we all hung out together, there were a bunch of us, and, you know, people really weren't conscious of, of you know, the racial thing so heavily, you know, it wasn't until, um, you know, until King that, that things really took a turn, but, you know, this is all pre- MLK. So, I mean, it was just, uh, you know, there were, it was, you know, I don't want to paint it as a utopia. I mean, I'm sure right, uh, there's right. a lot of socioeconomic stuff going on. But, sure, you know, it was just really the perfect neighborhood for that. You know, it was, it was definitely the climate was right for that kind of relationship. Let, let me surprise you with something that I think you'll find fascinating, okay? You said that you're Jewish growing up. Yeah. yeah. In an article, it mentions that. Some critic thought that he was anti-Semitic and was tied into the Nazis and Hitler. Wow, that's strange. Are you yeah, still there? Yeah. Did, did I lose you with yeah. that or what? <laughs> <laughs> I got to pick myself up off the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Mark, when we uncovered that, I was like, oh my goodness, what, what in the world? So this is coming from a June 16th, 1934 edition of the Baltimore Afro-American, okay? This woman told the reporter that Mr. Castani was connected with Hitler and the Nazis. <laughs> she insisted 
that the prophet was a small part of the world program of anti-Semitism. Okay? It gets a little better here in a bizarre way. Some months ago, while the Buy Where You Can Work movement, which is what he's most identified with in Baltimore, by the way, was at its height, Mr. Castoni received several threatening notes. One of these notes bearing a crudely drawn skull and crossbones was written on the back of a circular advising people to buy only where they could work. So, look at this other aspect of your girlfriend's dad that you did not know about. (laughs) (laughs) That is a shocker, but you know what? It's no surprise, I mean, on some level, because, you know, people always are trying to tie somebody to something that, you know, they feel threatened by somebody. They did the same thing to Farrakhan and, you know, Jesse Jack. This lady writing into the Afro, that's like out in left field. Did she bother to verify it or she was just, you know, kind of like a Trumper, you know, one of those QAnon type people, you know, just coming out with a conspiracy. And of course, the lady did not want to identify herself other than that that she was connected to being Jewish. What I would suspect is that that if he was boycotting maybe a Jewish-owned business or something like that, they were going to... You're smarter than the average bear, huh, boo-boo? I'm doing my yogi bear for you. (laughs) Listen, listen, Mark. (laughs) Many of the Jewish merchants had the stores on our historic Pennsylvania Avenue that were in danger of being boycotted. See, so that there could be some relevance to what we're talking about. But I just wanted to surprise you with the Jewish connection. I thought you could appreciate that. So with regards to Black Lives Matter, what do you think the prophet's involvement or impact or what he would be doing today if he was still with us? Well, my thoughts on that is, Having, you know, kind of a black nationalist bent back then, I mean, kind of similar but lesser to Garvey and Honorable Elijah Muhammad, I, I mean, I would like to think that he'd be entirely supportive of BLM in their peaceful but strong unwavering protest. Yeah, the Panthers were happening at the time, and I don't know what he thought of the Panthers. I mean, he was around at the time, obviously, but a lot older by then. Yeah. Uh, and I know Tony supported them, and like him, she was an, an activist in her own right. So it may have been a generational thing for him, you sure. know, as far as what, how he saw them, how he saw the Panthers, maybe. But, you know, I like to think, I think he would have looked on them as more or less come, as an older statesman. And they, in turn, may have benefited from his years and experience as an activist and hoarded him as rightful props. I mean, but that's, you know, kind of what I would like to think. I like that tone because, really, what he's doing in Baltimore in the 30s is relevant today it's an early version of black lives matter yeah with his economic boycott of the pennsylvania avenue merchants and the effort obviously is dubbed by where you can work i'm going to read you something that's from a professor and a longtime colleague of mine her name is prudence cumberbatch she basically states that this distinct youth political culture that engaged in a transformative dialogue within the larger black community. She's referring to Juanita Jackson, who's the daughter of Lily Carol Jackson, the longtime activist and president of the local chapter of the NAACP. The daughter Juanita in 31 launches something called the Citywide Young People's Forum, which engages in important conversations with experts, politicians, and other policymakers from across the Baltimore and throughout the country. So, Castani and his group end up partnering with this group known as the Citywide Young People's Forum to boycott Pennsylvania Avenue. So, that's an early, early version during the Depression of Black Lives Matter. So, I would hope that the lock, stock, and barrel folk on the front line would want to at least 
sit at the foot of the prophet and listen to him and take some wisdom and, and run with it. Right. Like, I mean, not unlike, you know, but maybe on a lesser level, John Lewis, you know, I right. mean, you know, I mean, he would have been accorded elder statesman status. It, I would, I would like to think. It, exactly. Um, you see a through line there though, uh, you know, like a black nationalist through line to Elijah Muhammad because the by where you work, you know, seems to seeks to contain it within its own community, within the black community, the same way that the uh, nation of Islam kept it all within the black community. I, I like that, and I didn't put that together, but that's why it's important to have dialogue in our podcast where we can come to these conclusions that maybe one of us did not see until we start engaging in this kind of nice rapport. Now that we've had this conversation and you saw the picture, and I know we can't go back in time, and, and so often I like to pretend that I can time travel because of the expansiveness of the Name Jack and Company archives. If you could go back now and talk to Kastani, what would you say to him? <laughs> I would love to go back and, and, and talk to him, you know, just with the experience of my years and, you know, just everything I've seen and observed and read. I, you know, I mean, I just, probably my first thing with him would be to just commend him and, and thank him for his activism early on and just, you know, just kind of tell him that I never knew it, never known about it as when I was younger and, you know, just I wish I had and had so many questions to ask him and, you know, I would have loved to have just sat and gotten his take on everything on the world and it would have been a wonderful conversation because uh, I can still picture him in my mind how he looked you know the, the, the quick eyes and rapid speech and his, his eyes were everywhere and mm. taking everything in and looking at everything and yeah I would love to have been to have the, the ability to talk to him again and had a conversation with him and I would have just loved to have been the fly on the wall recording all of that okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, let me ask you about the, the beloved Tony, the daughter. I'm, I'm looking over her background, and I, the first thing that comes to mind is, why don't we know about her also? She, she did so many fascinating things as an archivist curator, as an author, uh, as an interior designer, I mean, an artist. I mean, yeah. the, the lady was truly a Renaissance woman. She really was. And, you know, I don't know. Maybe she just didn't hype herself. She, she was very low-key. I mean, and she was like that when I knew her. I mean, she was always about a lot of stuff. She had a lot going on, and, and she just never really talked about herself. You know, she just didn't have that kind of ego. And, right. She, but but she, she had confidence, but not ego. Sure. I'm looking at one of her books, and, and you would know better. They're drastically different, but which book did you enjoy more? The Priestess Miriam Voodoo Spiritual Book or the African-American Slavery, Indenture, and Resistance in Illinois, 1720 to 1864? Okay, end of podcast. You got to go. We got to go. Bye. You haven't read either one? You publicly say that? Oh, my goodness. Keep going. I'm joking. Keep going. <laughs> no, they were out of print. But no, no, but I read excerpts. And, you know, I met Priestess Miriam, and I had long conversations with Tony about her and everything. We had reconnected. How did you meet the voodoo priestess? I knew where her shop was in New Orleans. I go down to New Orleans all the time. Well, at least I was. I probably won't be down there for another year or two, I would imagine. But after I reconnected with Tony and found out, you know, seen her book on Priestess Miriam and talked to her about it, and we've gone back and forth about New Orleans. Next time I went down there, I looked her up and just walked in her shop. And she was everything Tony had, had uh, made her out to be. I mean, she, she knew exactly what was going on from the minute I walked in. Mm. You know, I just introduced myself. And she mm. said, well, well, you're from up north, right? And I said, well, how do you know? And she said, well, because you're, you're moving so fast, you're so quick. And I didn't think I was moving real fast at the time. Yeah, it was just, it just hit New Orleans again. I was just 
getting my New Orleans, you know, state of mind down. You right, know, yeah. It a little slower, but she still picked up on that. And wrapping this wonderful conversation up, what's one thing about Tony that you could share that would enlighten our listening audience with something about her personality or how she looked or her humor or just something unique about her that you can share with us? She had a real droll humor, and I suspect that that was inherited from her father. And so every time I think about how, since I didn't really know him at all, every time I think about how he might have been, how he was, I just think back on how her, her reaction to various things, she have like a very dry, droll sense of humor, very conscious, a huge curiosity about everything. And I suspect she got a lot of that from him, you know, and that she had more chances than he did, probably because of the times. And I think she was just, like you said, a renaissance person. I mean, I think she, and unrecognized, really an unsung hero. And I think if anybody's looking for, you know, Kyle Castoni's legacy, I think you can really find it in Tony. I mean, I think she, she really picked up the torch and ran with it, as far as I'm concerned. And that doesn't always happen. So it is, it's refreshing to hear a case where the, the torch has been passed and then continued to be moved forward. So when we were researching Prophet, we realized that he went by the name of Tony Green, and hence the daughter's name is Tony. Wow. He went by Tony. Yeah. Early in his life, he was adopted. And first of all, he comes from a a Native American reservation in Utah, and he had a very difficult life. And before becoming known as the Prophet, he was Tony Green. <laughs> wow. So he named his first daughter Tony. Yeah. I just have to say thank you, thank you, thank you for being a a Facebook follower of that page that we posted the picture of promoting our new book for Old West Baltimore, where there's a extremely rare signed photograph of Prophet Kiowa Kastoni. And, you know, we hope this is the beginning of other podcasts that the Artifactor Journey can do with Mark Golden, especially since we have mutual love of some various aspects of the Bronzeville district in Chicago, the black metropolis. One little fact I wanted to share about him yeah. that I think is really complimentary and I really says a lot about him. Go ahead. And this leads to the thing, you know, about his whole, his whole reputation as, you know, ladies' man, womanizer, all that. And, and then, you know, I have to add that that was one of the things that Tony would sometimes complain to me about. And she, she had a rough time with it sometimes that he was, you know, messing with some of the... Uh, young women at his church at his little temple there and you know and that didn't sit well with her but while we were together there she became pregnant and so of course we dealt with it and she went to him and i went to my parents you know we told everybody about it everybody was cool about it but obviously something had to be done because it, you know we were both 15 there was just not a realistic direction to continue and so he wanted to all meet up and discuss what was going to happen so i think to that extent, I think he wanted to share, like, a, you know, financial responsibility over. He was going to see to the arrangements because mm -hmm. obviously in '67, '68, you know, the solution would have been illegal. So they came over. So that that was my other encounter with him. That you know, I just wanted to share briefly that he came over, spent about 45 minutes over at the house. He came in and he was very gracious and took off his hat. My father shook hands at the door and welcomed him in. He probably offered him refreshment. So we sat down and talked for a while, and we got right to it. Mm. And he just he just took it in stride, and there was no problem. There was no argument. We thought it was absolute fair situation to just split everything, you know, and kind of felt bad about the situation. But 
yeah. handled it. He, he did what he needed to do. He stepped up. He just wasn't one of these guys that said, no, honey, you're on your own. You know, you take care of it or whatever. He didn't throw her under the bus. He didn't let her dangle. He just stepped up and took care of it, you know. And, you know, for that, I, I really respect him. I really got to give him a lot of props on that. Well, I, I got to give you props for sharing that. And th there's so many deep complex messages that come out of that story that you're sharing and as a father i can appreciate the difficulty of handling that situation and the time period we're not talking about 2020 we're talking about in the midst of the civil rights movement right before the assassination of martin luther king jr i mean this is a volatile time in american history yeah and it's interracial my goodness so yeah there was a lot of there were a lot of things you know a lot of a lot of stuff flying around, a lot of factors involved in that that could have gone way wrong. But he, he just handled it with a grace and a dignity, and it just impressed the hell out of me. Also, you have to think about your parents as well, because not every parent would have handled it with the same level of sensitivity, awareness, and thoughtfulness that your parents stepped up as well. Right, right. To their credit, they did. They wanted to appear down with it, as it were. But, you know, but no, they were fine. They, they really did step up. And, you know, everybody turned to what could have been a really, really messy situation into really a fairly right. straightforward one, you know. Yeah. Well, and so when you talk about the torch being passed with Tony, you are who you are today and being able to share with us through Facebook and now with the podcast and then friendship over the phone and email and so forth. Look at how you've been able to carry the torch as well. Can't forget stuff, you know. Yeah, and we all can learn from it. See, so I'm humbled, honored, and delighted that I, I like to invite you into our family so we can talk about other things and other podcasts in the future. So don't be a stranger. Oh, I can't wait to see that. I really I appreciate you, fellas. Okay. I mean, this is really a great experience. Okay, and, and lastly, I look forward to the Morrisine Simple Conversation at another time. <laughs> Definitely. Okay, you have a good evening and stay all safe, right, my friend. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye.